Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. society is privileged to employ musicians who are not only virtuosos on their instruments, but experts in the field. Some are researchers, authors, professors, and others pursue a variety of paths, both in music and outside of it. I've not had the pleasure of speaking with one of our experts in the wind department, and I'm delighted to remedy this ill by welcoming our principal flutist, Emmy Ferguson, to the podcast. Emmy is a multifaceted musician, a composer, vocalist, and performer on both modern and period flutes. She is a billboard charting recording artist and a college educator and appears with numerous groups in addition to H&H. Emmy, it's great to have you. Welcome to Tuning In. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Could we start by hearing about your various activities as a musician and your history with the flute, both modern and period? When did you start? How did you come to music? How did you come to the flute in particular and period instruments? Absolutely. You know, uh, like so many of us in H&H, I think the primary driver is curiosity. And, you know, when you're doing period music and especially on period instruments, if you don't have curiosity, you're going to want to leave that pretty soon um, because you're always constantly trying to find out new ways to look at music from the past. You're asking the questions about, you know, what were these composers looking for? What were the people of the time hearing and imagining this would sound like? And how do we work with these instruments that have changed and developed into their modern counterparts today? So for me, that idea of curiosity completely inspires everything that I do in both period performance, but also in the contemporary music that I do, which really asks the same thing. You're working with with music that's being written today. You're developing new techniques and you get a really amazing perspective on what it might have been like 300 years ago. Um, so the two really play beautifully with each other. And that kind of just uh, leads me to, I play basically almost every flute out there. It feels like, um, I think if you saw my collection, it's embarrassingly large at this point. (laughs) Um, but I started the flute when I was six and I came to it from the recorder. I played the recorder when I was three and I loved it, but something was missing. And I remember dynamics, dynamics. Yeah. I don't know, like (laughs) shiny metal, maybe. (laughs) I'm sorry to my recorder friends. I apologize. No, I mean, and yeah, it, it, it was just like this wonderful introduction, though, to the idea of using your breath and your air as a way to produce sound. And so starting on the recorder was was an amazing 
entry point for me to then jump to the flute when I was six, which is still quite young um, for flute players to start playing the flute because your arms aren't quite long enough usually to reach the entire length of the instrument. So luckily I had a sort of bendy, curvy instrument that helped remedy that a little bit for smaller players of the instrument, but it was something that I'd wanted to do. And I remember saying to my parents, I lived in England at the time, and I just said to them one day, I want to play the flute. And they kind of looked at me quizzically and sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, sure. And so wow. then the next week we went and we bought a flute at um, this very wonderful flute shop in London. I brought it home, opened it upside down. The entire flute fell out on the floor, of course. And uh, that was the very, uh, you know, auspicious start to my flute career. <laughs> Are there pictures of you as a six or seven year old playing a bendy flute with short arms? There are not only pictures, but at that time I was obsessed with sitting with my cassette tape player and just doing shows for myself and recording them. I maybe could play three notes on the flute, but I thought that it was like three notes that needed to be put into recorded music history. So there are some very embarrassing um, six-year-old talent shows. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. And also kudos to you. I think it's fair to say you're one of the younger members of Handel and Haydn. I'm delighted that you know what a cassette player is. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and um, if you're interested and willing, uh, if you send us one of those pictures, we'll definitely put it on the on the podcast page. <laughs> if you... sure. At any rate, that's a great story. <laughs> I love what you said about playing contemporary music and music on period instruments, because there certainly seems to be a correlation. Many of our heroes on period instruments also do quite a fair bit of uh, contemporary music and you know people have different ideas as to why that is but your emphasis on the freshness and that and the curiosity about what was it like the day it was written is terrific you're the first wind player we've hosted on the podcast and i have some wind related questions for you i hope that's okay yeah, hit so me. So <laughs> I think that many in our audience would like to know a bit about the evolution of the flute. You mentioned you have basically all of them, so you must know a lot of... Well, that's an overstatement. Well, most of them, let's say. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, certainly most of them in the Western tradition, because the flute is the oldest melodic instrument that we have from you know, human civilizations um, in different parts of the world. And I am, of course, very biased, but I think it's an instrument that is sort of embedded in our cultural DNA in a really impactful way because it has been present in every culture around the world for you know scores of thousands mm -hmm. of years here. Um, and so, you know, you often have people who love it or hate it, I think, because there's such a visceral um reaction they have to, to sort of like that it's like deep 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 in our in our cells somewhere um but of course you know the flute has been played throughout the world in many you know slightly different configurations for a very long time but the flute that we know of it as today um in the western tradition was developed around 1680 in the court of louis the 14th that's the baroque flute that we all know and love at h and h and it was developed by groups of woodwind players who were in the employment of louis the 14th at versailles and they 
were experimenting with all sorts of different things and landed on the beautiful conical flute. And what that means is that the tube is wider, the diameter of it is wider at the top than at the bottom in three or four parts in terms of you can like chop up that tube of wood and with one key at the bottom to help um, with, with some of the notes to make a little bit easier to reach. And this instrument made of wood sometimes would have had some ivory as embellishments at the time um, is very simple in its construction. It's just a tube of wood with six holes where your mm -hmm. fingers play and one key at the bottom for one finger that can't reach it. And that is the instrument that launched, you know, all of, of Western classical flute music, which is, is really fun to think about. Right. You mentioned it launched classical music uh, for the flute. The flute had been used, I recently read that, to my surprise, that as a military instrument in the 15th century, the, the Swiss yeah. army used it for signaling. Uh, how would that flute have been different from the one that you're describing, that the, the 1680s flute? Generally, you know, when you're thinking about military instruments, they're going to be loud. Um, and they're probably going to be smaller, which would help them be loud. The Renaissance flute that was sort of the precursor in the more sort of intimate chapel or concert experience was actually a lot quieter than the Baroque flute. And it had limited dynamics that meant that it often had to be played or people liked to play it in consorts or groups of flutes, flute choirs. But the military flutes that you're talking about, it's sort of the history of fife and drum, even marching band um, that we have today, you know, the piccolos, the high things that you can hear from far off. And of course, who would have shared that tradition are the oboes, these very loud instruments that would have been able to have been heard on the battlefield. So you hear a lot of these double reed bands that are also happening um, a little bit earlier. And of course, those double reed bands and um, musicians were the ones who ended up experimenting and creating this new instrument that was really well suited to mm, the court. That's incredible. So I'm curious, uh, you know, one of the names, even the contemporary 18th century names for the Baroque flute, and it's got several, is the German flute. Oftentimes in England, mm. it went through Germany, but more or less codified, not exactly invented, but, but codified in France. Do you know about that transition from France to... I'm, I, what I'm getting at is I'm, I'm curious, you know... Yeah, the, the name, name And right? also, <laughs> you and I just uh, performed some Bach, a concert of all Bach, where you played uh, both the Brandenburg... Concerto Number no. Five, which has a significant solo for flute, and the Second Orchestral Suite, which is kind of all about the flute. And I'm curious about Bach's exposure to it, and the fact that only five years before Bach was born is when this tinkering with the flute. So it, it began in France, and it could be that it continued during his lifetime that the instrument actually changed somewhat. I'm very curious about both the etymology, but mostly about how it, it arrived in Germany and its place in musical life around Bach. Yeah, it's called the flute allemande in some literature, often called the flute traversière, you know, to the side, traverso, rather than the flute à bec, which is the recorder at the beak or at the mouth. But if I had to guess, and, you know, any scholars out there, please uh, <laughs> ignore my guess, but it might have just been because that was a little bit mm. more exotic. Mm. The flute allemande, it took the flute 
quite a long time to reach Bach. Of course, at that point, you know, we didn't have as much interconnectivity as we have today. The flute got its first start. You know, the first piece I think that we have is from Lully in the 1680s, um, is written specifically for flute traversière rather than a flute à bec in one of his operas. And then you start to see more concert music that's being written for this new Baroque flute because it became a wild hit, especially with the aristocracy. People loved it because, as you mentioned before, it could play Mm. dynamics. And this was something that the recorders is quite limited in, but this flute could play really quietly it can go from like the softest softest moments to i wouldn't say it's loud but (laughs) there's a dramatic ability to go from sort of more heralding sound to a very soft delicate sound which wowed everybody and it just sort of kind of made this instrument like the hot thing to have in your groups to write music for and so you start to see a lot of music first developing in France for the instrument and you start to also see virtuosi who on this specific instrument come up. And one of those virtuosi was Pierre-Gabriel Bouffardin. And he's a French performer, but who spent a lot of his life traveling. And he traveled all over Europe. He even got down to Istanbul. And there is a letter from Bach's brother who had met Bouffardin in Istanbul. And he writes to Bach and is like, hey, I just met this crazy, amazing a uh, flute player, you got to hear him sometime. I don't know how, but he's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and, um, you know, then several years later, Bouffardin is in the Dresden court where Bach visits and he heard this virtuoso for the first time and was blown away. And this is during the time that Bach was in residence in Cotin, 1717 to 1723, when he was writing just enormous amounts of secular instrumental music, of which, of course, we have the Brandenburg Concerti, which features the flute in Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5, which many people think was written for Bouffardin to play with Bach himself at the harpsichord. Um, So that's like the beginning of Bach's introduction to the flute is with this incredible virtuoso. We know that he also wrote his famous solo in A minor, his partita for flute, intended for Bouffardin. And there are actually quotes from the premiere of that that have Bouffardin performing. And it's said that he circular breathed the entire first movement. And if we know about that first movement, we know that it is just a string of 16th notes that are very reminiscent of the first movement of the fifth cello suite and the first prelude of the Well-Tempered Clavier. There's no rest, there's nowhere to breathe, and it's a challenge for flute players today as well as then, I would imagine. And it's crazy to think that Bouffardin was already such a wildly incredible virtuoso at this instrument that he was able to circular breathe, you know, one of the hardest pieces for the flute still today in its premiere performance. So we know that there were just completely incredible people who Bach was hearing back then who had complete mastery um, of this instrument and loved to not only showcase Bach's virtuosity, but their own virtuosity. That's an incredible story. And it makes me think about what our audience might consider 
virtuosity and what what hits them first if you see Aislinn play some incredible solo our concertmaster Aislinn then oftentimes you look at how fast her left hand fingers are moving on the fingerboard right <laughs> very few people look at the bow and actually the bow is where oh music gosh. is made that's where the real virtuoso is and for you to speak about breathing as part of that virtuosity is extremely telling can you tell us what circular breathing is Yeah, circular breathing is a technique that you can use so that you can keep a pitch or a line of music going without ever having to pause to take a breath. Um, it's uh, basically what you do is you inhale through your nose and you exhale out through your mouth at the same time. So you're never taking air in through your mouth, but only through your nose. And this is a lot easier on a closed system instrument like an oboe, saxophone, clarinet, um, bassoon. A lot of modern players use that, um, mm -hmm. that technique today. But it's harder on the flute because if, um, if you think about how a flute is played, it's as if you're blowing over the top of a Coke bottle, you know, a glass bottle, and you're creating a pitch by cutting air into the tube rather than putting your entire mouth around it, it means there's a lot of air that's mm. escaping. So it's a lot harder to create this closed system for circular breathing on an instrument like the flute. And it is not a standard technique that people do today. It is definitely one that a lot of players can do, but far from standard. And so this is quite unusual when I tell people that Wufardan circular breathes, it's yeah. like, oh, brother. Come on, um, because, you know, everyone's always talking about how, where do you breathe in Bach? You know, there's so many places you don't want to interrupt the line, but it's also, you know, breathing is part of being human and about playing the flute or singing, you know, you need to breathe. It's much more challenging to circularly breathe on the flute because of that. You actually have to store the air in your cheeks and in your upper lip and then quickly force it out as you inhale through your nose. So this would have been a serious feat of um, virtuosity then, now, at any time um, to be able to control each one of these really beautifully, perfectly placed notes that Bach wrote and that span the entire range of this instrument. Our Baroque flute is a little bit more reduced in range than the modern flute counterpart is. And Bach was one of the first people to write for the highest notes, the high A that ends this like tour de force of um, 16th notes. And he ends on this high A that's just this like bright singing like I'm here kind of arrival. Yeah. It's like this instrument is a solo instrument and pay attention folks. Wow. And Bach really used that. I mean, what we often talk about is how this period in Kötten is when he wrote most of his secular instrumental music. And that's true for almost all instruments. But what's weird about the flute is that because it was during that time that he heard it for the first time, he was well into his 30s at this point, to hear a brand new instrument and sort of think about what colors this instrument could actually add to your toolkit. Mm -hmm. um, he ended up writing sonatas for the flute for the rest of his life, and we don't really know why. Um, mm. <laughs> there, of course, are people that we think, oh, perhaps he wrote it for that person, Perhaps this was written for this occasion or that or something, but 
it seems that a lot of it was just driven from his own curiosity and excitement about making something for this new instrument and creating a repertoire for it, whether or not he had people immediately at his disposal to play it because he knew there were amazing players out there like Bufferdan and that there would continue to be more. Mm. Isn't that amazing? You know, Bach is one of our canonic composers, right? One of the people we really hold up as a as a column upon which yeah. Western art music rests. And to think that during his life, there were still innovations, still new things, still discoveries that completely impacted his imagination, the way he wrote. Uh, I, I think that for our audience, what you're referencing about why he would write something, the idea being that you know, oftentimes a composer would compose a work for someone in particular or for a commission, and th there was a purpose. Bach was very much a pragmatic craftsman, right? Writing uh, what he had in his mind, but also usually for for particular uh, occasions and for particular people. And but but this instrument clearly struck a chord in his imagination. And whether or not someone played these things, a little bit like the cello suites, we don't know for whom yeah. he composed them, but maybe he just had something to say and had to say it and i love the flute sonatas uh it's, it's i'm glad he did you know it's some of the, my, my favorite music to, to listen to and hear and i have to say on a personal note one of the reasons i'm in early music is that partita in a minor uh, for unaccompanied flute uh, which i first heard not played on a flute but played by a cellist named Anur bilsma on a cd that i bought after hearing at a store and it was the first time I'd heard a Baroque player, first time I'd heard notes without vibrato, and I was so struck by this. I bought the CD, and if you could wear out a CD, then I would have worn it out and still love this recording. And uh, one of the works that he plays is an arrangement of this A minor partita. And I have to also admit that when I first heard it on flute, the, the thing that most shocked me was that, oh, wait, they have to pause for breaths, which, of course, Honor <laughs> didn't. And the music took on a whole new uh, perspective, you know, the, the humanity of it. Uh, so it's really interesting for me to hear that Bufardin may have circular breathed this. And it also kind of blows up any misconception anyone might have that, you know, because there is an evolution of music, we can more or less chart it. We might think that earlier music was in some ways primitive or the, the players were in some ways deficient compared to us. And here you go. There's, here's a guy who could do something few people do today. It's 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 an incredible story. I'm so glad you shared it. Yeah, it's super wild. And you know what I love what you said about being able to take these pieces and put them on different instruments because I think that is what is at the core of why box music resonates with so many people. Because while he is writing for individual instruments, it is always transferable. And it's why you see these incredible projects um, from people who rearrange it for different things, take it into different genres, put it on different instruments, and it works. There's so yeah. much you can do with that. And it's the same thing with the breathing. Every time I come to the Alamond, I breathe in a slightly different place and it completely changes the piece. And it's mm. it never gets old. Mm. It never gets old. I have to say that I think it's one of the strengths of both of singers and of wind players over us string players who don't have to breathe in our playing you know the fact that you essentially have to apply grammar to whatever piece you know you know because a, a breath is a is a pause in a way however small and, and quick 
it's it's a it's a punctuation in a sort of way and it really lends to this idea that music is very much a, a language and the same rules that govern spoken language govern music and for your instrument and for you as an artist it's much more readily available than it is for us and i i constantly learn more about phrasing another word that comes from language and articulation another one um, from you wind players how you use your breath to be musical as opposed to using your breath just to stay alive and it's a it's a nuisance you know what i mean well and likewise i mean i think we all learn so much from working with each other and hearing each other, especially in music like box, which is so sort of universally challenging for everybody. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny when you look, I went, at least when I look at his flute music, he starts off writing in relatively friendly keys for the instrument. I mean, relatively is, it's, (laughs) but by the time it's in the 1740s, his last sonata that he wrote for flute and continuo is in E major one of our gnarlier keys. And then in 1747, the musical offering, which was this challenge between Frederick the Great and Bach to write the gnarliest piece in C minor that is chromatic. And if we go back to what how the Baroque flute is um, developed, it is not a melodically chromatic instrument. And that's why you see in a lot of Bach's music, it's very thorny harmonically, but melodically, He rarely applies chromatic scales unless it's at a slower tempo. But in the musical offering, because Frederick the Great, who was a flute player, (laughs) um, challenged Bach to try and do all of these crazy improvisations on this super chromatic gnarly theme, Bach came back and presented Frederick the Great with, I think, one of the hardest things written for the instrument, the musical offering trio, which oh, you know, is just, it's thorny and yeah. hard. <laughs> Absolutely. In many ways. Yeah. And and it shows how every single key on the Baroque flute has a completely different set of challenges, a completely different world and color that you don't get in the same way on a modern instrument that is built to try and have an evenness of tone and an excellence in chromaticism from the lowest note to the highest note of the instrument. Mm. Um, But Bach wasn't constricted by that. He wrote in the keys that he wanted to, and he is able to open up the very distinct and individual characters that each one of those keys gives. And you hear it in different ways when it's applied to different instruments, which again, allows this music to just continue to live on and on. That's brilliant. You're implying that the choice of key for a piece by a good composer is essential to the character of the piece. That, you know, your E major flute sonata, if you transposed it to D major, would be an entirely different piece with a different color and a different sound. It seems to me like that's what you're, you're saying, that Bach really chose the keys. Well, you're saying two things. He didn't really care. <laughs> But that the choice of key definitely makes a a, a color difference on the instrument. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, I think he picked the keys for the color. And then I don't know if he was like particularly kind about the technical challenges that it Mm. would um, present to the player. But often, you know, when you see this in his cantatas and um, his passions, he'll pick the keys for affect to create a mood or a tone Mm. 
um, that supports the text that's being delivered by the, the vocalist. Mm-hmm. And it's so striking the different worlds he's able to bring us into purely by picking the right key that can either, you know, open the sound up in a bright celebratory way or veil it in this kind of like mystery. And it's, it's like, I always recommend to people, like if you've never heard the St. Matthew Passion on period instruments, like it's going to change your entire perspective, just hearing how Bach navigates through the story with the different choices in keys that he makes mm. and for the entire ensemble so are there this this is a basic question you'll forgive me i hope but are there keys on the flute the, the baroque flute that are for instance naturally louder than other keys that speak more easily than other keys yeah the flute is built itself in d major and it all has to do with physics so if you think about a tube like a stick of wood If you have a stick of wood that just has the opening at the top for where you're going to blow over to create the sound, and there are no holes in it, which is the same as if I cover every single hole with my finger, it's going to produce a strong, solid tone. Even if I start to raise fingers up one by one from the bottom of the instrument to the top of the instrument, that stick of wood is essentially still one solid piece. It's just getting shorter, kind of like one of those like zoop, zoop, um, little toy. Uh, mm-hmm. What are they, I can't remember what they're called. Like jet whistles. Or yeah, just is? little whistle. Yeah, basically, yeah. you're just shortening the tube or you're you're lengthening the tube. Mm-hmm. But so I've got my six fingers. It's my uh, index, middle, and ring fingers for both of my hands that are covering these holes. If I, for instance, have all six of those down, but then vent my left ring finger, which creates an open hole in the middle of the tube, I've now created a problem. (laughs) From the (laughs) physics perspective, I have created a vent. There is air escaping out of the tube, which is going to weaken the sound because it means that I don't have a consistent covering until the you know the end of the end of the tube where the air mm-hmm. all escapes as a result what's going to happen is the tone quality is going to change very dramatically because you're going to have air escaping you can't put as much air into the instrument because it's going to crack it's going to break so we call these forked fingerings um, because it's as if you've got like a fork in the road Uh, The air Mm. is escaping down a different pathway than sort of the intended pathway, the the vertical pathway from the top to the bottom of the instrument. And anytime you have a forked fingering, you're going to have that reduction in dynamics. Okay. And the amount of air you can put into the instrument, it's also going to change the color of the tone from a harder color to a softer color. So this is essentially why chromatic scales do not work well on this instrument Mm. because you're going to have notes that go like "Ah, uh, 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 uh." it'll be quite wonky um Mm. if you go up i can show you what that's like on the baroque flute so i have one here i'm going to play a d major scale which means that my fingers are going to just raise one hole up along the tube keeping it nice and solid and will result in my loudest scale that I can play that allows me to put the most air into the instrument. Okay. <laughs> 
just one step to E-flat major, you'll hear that there is a significant change in the color. And that's because some of my notes are going to have that same strong setup, but some of them will be forked and it will result in a, in a tone change. step higher still, we have E major will give us a completely different world again because of the difference in those forked fingerings. D major again just for reference. So there's a sort of a, a quick introduction to the key colors and characteristics that you can get on this instrument that composers at the Baroque really exploited. And mm. that is one of the things that I think is the most fascinating about studying and playing early instruments is unlocking the key to these worlds that as modern players, we don't have the same understanding for because our instruments are built to be as even as possible. So here's my modern flute playing those same three keys, D major, E flat and E major. They're essentially the same tone quality. That's what we strive for as modern flute players, and it's why we can play chromatic scales like this. Really fast, really even on the Baroque flute. Oh boy. Hmm. There is no piece in the Baroque flute repertoire that asks that because you can hear the unevenness of the tone. It's also quite hard to navigate on hmm. the instrument. So I'm really grateful for that demonstration. I wanted to ask you, as you mentioned, you know, our modern instruments almost entirely across the board are built and designed to provide the player with evenness and kind of sameness and what we think of as stability. So one could take a, a cynical look and, and look at the earlier versions of these instruments, whether they're string, wind, mm. keyboard, as, as deficient, as lacking. But you and I know that's not true. There are some things that one loses. So Bach sonata in C major for flute and Bach's sonata in E major or E minor for that matter, all for flute, would sound entirely differently on a period instrument and, as you've said, would sound more or less the same, at least in their color, unless the, the player manipulated it yeah. on a modern flute. So for me, that's something that's potentially lost, but... Certainly, there are genius players on the modern flute, including yourself. And so, with no intention to disparage from their ability, are there things that inform your modern playing? Knowing this about the Baroque flute, is there something that you can approximate on the modern flute? Or is it a, a lost cause? No, not a lost cause at all. And I think um, what makes really great performers in general is their ability to be a chameleon in your sound. And that's what I love, especially about working with composers today is sort of being challenged to come up with new ways to create 
sound on the instrument, ways that I might not have expected or thought to do. And being that chameleon is exactly what you get from sort of understanding these key differences from the Baroque flute and then asking yourself like, okay, on the modern flute, I am going to do what I can to try and inhabit that world, knowing that it is an entirely different instrument. Um, I don't think it's sort of worthwhile for us to try and, and emulate 100% what we do on a period instrument, because you do have all these different things available to you on that flute. And so it's sort of saying, okay, if I'm playing Bach Sonata in E major, now that I understand what the challenges are, what the tone color is that is going to happen on a Baroque instrument, how can that inform my modern flute playing? And you can choose whether to use that information or depart from it and say, um, you know what, this is a different instrument. I'm just going to make this music work excellently for this instrument that I'm working for today, or try and emulate that other sound and also bring other nuances to the piece that the modern flute is able to, and vice versa. I mean, I played all these pieces on the modern flute before I ever played them on the Baroque flute. And there are some things that I sort of bring to them from my modern flute training and other things now that I bring back when I play them on the modern flute from my playing them on early instruments. So it's always this dialogue and this exchange that we go through. And of course, as as wind players, the instruments really are completely different in that we have completely different sets of fingerings. It's a different way of producing the sound. It's a different way of controlling your airstream because we don't have the forked fingerings in the same way. On the modern flute, we have extra keys distributed throughout the entire instrument to help us so that we don't need to make those forked fingerings and have those weak you know, quotation mark, weak notes. So you're always learning from both of them, but because they are so incredibly different, you can never play it in the same way on a Baroque flute that you would on a modern flute or vice versa, but you can always be informed by it. Mm. Well, Emmy, I have to uh, thank you. I have learned so much from you today. You're brilliant on your feet. And I really appreciate your answers and your insight. And of course, your playing. It's a pleasure to have you on, and I hope to be able to welcome you back here soon. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us. Thank you. Emmy Ferguson is Principal Flute of the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for this and previous episodes, as well as supplementary materials, including a bio of Emmy and links to her various activities. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. <laughs>